Hello and welcome to another special bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. The summer has been admittedly a little tough, but we did not want to leave you hanging. So we've put together another collection of some of our favorite articles from the last two years on the subject of pop culture inventions. We hope that you enjoy them. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And these were some damn interesting weeks. First link comes to us from the IEEE Spectrum, or IEEE Spectrum. (laughs) (laughs) It's an acronym that stands for the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers. And this one's called, This Socialite Hated Washing Dishes So Much That She Invented the Automated Dishwasher. Oh, wow. Yeah, thank you. Right? It turns out that the first dishwasher to be granted a patent was invented in 1850 by someone named Joel Houghton. This one was kind of the early prototype. It was a wooden box that used a hand-turned wheel to splash water on dirty dishes, and it had scrubbers. So, man, hmm. you know, first attempt, not too bad. Mm-hmm. But then 10 years later, an inventor named L.A. Alexander improved on this original machine by adding a geared mechanism that allowed the user to spin racked dishes through a tub of water. And it was okay, but the person that we really have to thank for the modern-day dishwasher as we know it is Josephine Cochran. Her machine was the first to use water pressure instead of scrubbers to clean Mm. dishes, which made it more efficient than either Houghton or Alexander's versions. And for her invention, she was inducted to the U.S. National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2006. So she never got to enjoy her accolades, (laughs) but she did enjoy a fair amount of success. Basically, what happened was she married a wealthy merchant, William Cochran, in 1858. And as a socialite, she was expected to hold frequent dinner parties. Mm. So she would serve these meals on expensive heirloom china. But when the household staff hand washed the dishes, the delicate china often got chipped. She even tried to wash the dishes herself. But after she chipped a few plates, she (laughs) was like, I need to design and build a machine that could handle the task. There's even a quote, according to a profile of her on the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office website, she vowed quote, if nobody else is going to invent a mechanical dishwashing machine, I'll do it myself. (laughs) (laughs) Although she had no technical background, she did come from a family of engineers and inventors. For example, her father, John Garris, was a civil engineer who supervised a number of mills near the Ohio River in Illinois. And her great-grandfather, John Fitch, invented the first steamboat to be granted a U.S. patent. So it was kind of in her blood. It was Hmm. out of her immediate wheelhouse, but she had some good epigenetics in her favor here. <laughs> so she designed her first model in the shed behind her house in Shelbyville, Illinois. She measured the width, height, and length of plates, cups, and saucers and constructed wire compartments for the china to sit in. The compartment separated each piece of dishware. This should all sound super familiar yeah. if you have a dishwasher. Yeah. <laughs> At the bottom of the machine was a container that held soap and the compartments were placed inside a wheel that laid flat within a copper boiler. A motor powered the wheel, which turned as the soapy water was squirted on the dishes to clean them. Hmm. She got a U.S. patent in 1886 for her machine. 1886. Wow. Yeah, that is really early. I was thinking you were going to say like the 40s maybe. Yeah, like that's when all that kind of stuff was 
was coming out, you know, like all these fancy inventions for... Mm -hmm. Exactly, for consumers. But what happened was, you know, in 1886, she gets the patent, she advertised the invention in local newspapers, and having a higher profile helped her connect with restaurants and hotels, who really got the most use out of this early on. And it also connected her with investors. But a lot of investors asked her to resign so the company could be sold to a man. Mm -hmm. However, she refused and continued to fund the business herself. Yep. She wanted to increase her sales. And so she had a brilliant idea to display her machine at the 1893 Chicago World's Fair. Mm. That was where she got a lot of visibility. She even won an award for the machine's design and durability. After that, orders came pouring in and she opened a manufacturing facility near Chicago. It was really catching on with the hospitality and restaurant industry, but it wasn't until the 1950s that dishwashers caught on in households. Some homemakers admitted they enjoyed washing dishes by hand. And part of this is also because a lot of homes built before the 1950s used a furnace to heat water, and not all furnaces at the time could produce enough hot water to run the dishwasher. And you got to think as well, in the early kitchens, there wasn't space for a giant machine. No one had ever said, oh, let's block off a four by four square foot spot in my kitchen for this device that doesn't exist yet. Right. We needed the golden years of post-war boom America to really expand both the square footage of houses, some Mm -hmm. improvements in how hot water was being generated. But it all took off really well. In 1926, her company was acquired by KitchenAid, which is now part of Whirlpool. So it's all been kind of subsumed into the conglomerates. But let us not forget Josephine Cochran. Yeah. I mean, I love this article because it's so much just like she was just trying to have a good time. And (laughs) (laughs) she got so fed up with that dishwashing business that she started a dishwashing business. I mean, that's pretty amazing to me. Yeah, it was the classic, there's got to be a better way we this caught my eye because we're in the process of replacing our dishwasher that was supposed to come last month then it was supposed to come tomorrow and now it's coming at the end of the month and it's one of the best household robots i can think of sure oh dishwasher (laughs) yeah i actually wash all of my dishes by hand still just because that's how i grew up but my wife is trying to convert me over to the dishwashing practice Mm -hmm. way of life yeah i was raised with the neurotic philosophy that you wash the dishes before you put them in the dishwasher (laughs) So it's kind of the worst of both worlds for me, but. (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. Well, this article from Messy Nessie Chic looks at the history of delivering items by pneumatic tubes. Ooh. I don't know about you. I have an absolutely childish level of love for these things. Like when you go (laughs) to the bank and it sucks your little container up, it's like, oh, they're just utterly delightful. I love them. It feels like one of the only holdovers from like Victorian steampunk chic Mm -hmm. that continues to persist today other than the like penny farthing bicycle, right? Yeah, but that's like a statement. These tubes are in use. (laughs) Like people like them. But I'd, I'd always thought of them as being pretty contained within a single business. You know, it's like sending memos in an office building or like I know some big department stores used to send the customers money up to a single accounting department Mm because they didn't trust the sales girls with the cash, basically. (laughs) But apparently from 1900 to 1950, the city of New York was using them to deliver more than a third of all the mail that came through the Postal Service. Whoa. So the very first pneumatic tubes were installed in London in 1854 where they were invented by a Scottish engineer named William Murdoch. They were used at that time to connect the telegraph office to the London Stock Exchange so that buy and sell orders could get to the floor more quickly than they could Mm -hmm. be carried by hand. Over the next few decades, similar systems were built in Berlin, Paris, Prague, and Vienna. 
1893, Philadelphia became the first American city to install them. So when New York City finally got them in 1897, the technology was super established and they went big. So they installed a large tubing system from Station P in the Produce Exchange Building to the General Post Office at Broadway and Park Row. I don't know New York that well. I can't tell you how far that is or even what the Produce Exchange Building does. I've never Mm -hmm. heard of it. But (laughs) it was a distance and it was more than anyone had ever done before. Previously, they'd kind of been using it to replace how fast can a person walk? This tube can go faster. Now they actually were replacing vehicles. Wow. So at the unveiling of the new system, over 100 spectators were present just to see the new technology. And the first delivery sent was a Bible wrapped in an American flag, which it feels like one of those things that's technically illegal. Like there's a special (laughs) way you got to fold the flag. And I don't think it involves a Bible. (laughs) (laughs) But the second item sent was an artificial peach which was a joke for the master of ceremonies, politician Chauncey Depew, who had previously been called a peach in the newspapers. (laughs) So they sent the Bible, they sent the peach, and then insanely enough, the third item sent through this new system was a live cat. (gasps) Yeah. Ooh. Postal worker Howard Wallace Connolly wrote in his autobiography, quote, How it could live after being shot at terrific speed and making several turns, I cannot conceive. But it did. So, you know... (laughs) It it was fine. I mean, it survived. Yeah. (laughs) Fine, maybe. I don't want to invalidate the cat's feelings. I'm not gaslighting him. (laughs) And, you know, it's also a little unpleasant to imagine just how they got the cat inside because the tube containers themselves were 24 inches long, which is longer than I was thinking, but just eight inches in diameter. And they weighed 25 pounds. What? Yeah. Each one of them could hold about 600 letters. And before long, the system was transporting more than 95,000 letters per day. It was staffed by a group of 136 dispatchers known as Rocketeers. Nice. The pipes were buried four to six feet underground, and they could provide three to eight pounds per inch of air pressure, which moved the containers at an average speed of 30 to 35 miles per hour. Hey. Yeah. So that reduced what had been a 40-minute route by mail wagon to just seven minutes. Wow. Yeah. So they worked. And I mean, they have some great pictures in the articles of like, you know, a woman who sort of looks like an old school telephone operator, except she's got about 100 tubes all sort of coming down and facing her. And they're all labeled. And she's just, you know, popping things out and putting them in different ones. It's very cool. I love the system. But you're using the past tense, though, which is alarming here. Yeah, they're kind of done with it. Service was briefly halted during World War One to save money. But other than that, the system remained steadily in use up until the early 1950s. And by then, it was starting to show some wear and tear. So, like, letters would sometimes come out of the system with damage from leaking water or gas lines. Aww. Yeah. And so, and anytime one got clogged, they had to literally dig up a street to fix it. You know, this was like an <laughs> underground utility. Yeah. And aside from the difficulty in maintaining the system, they were pretty much unable to expand it due to those same growing water and gas lines. You know, as Mm. the population got more dense, they were like, well, do we want to give them mail or do we want to give them water? We could put the mail in a truck, but we really can't put the water in a truck. So the water and gas gets priority. (laughs) Yeah. So in 1953, the recently inaugurated President Dwight D. Eisenhower appointed a new postmaster general named Arthur Summerfield. And he made the unilateral decision to just shut down the pneumatic tubes entirely and switch the whole city to mail delivery trucks. Hmm. Now, it's worth noting that Summerfield owned a stake in a GM auto dealership. You don't say. Uh Uh-huh. And the new fleet of mail trucks sold to the government were all GM vehicles. (sighs) 
And of course, New York wasn't the only one, and some cities managed to keep their systems running for a little longer, including Paris, which was using them for mail delivery up until the 1980s. But, you know, for the most part, they just couldn't keep up with the improvements to vehicles and roads above, and they ultimately became less efficient, so they got abandoned. But the tubes themselves are still buried underneath (gasps) New York City and a lot of other places, and some are in good condition. And some people have even suggested repurposing them now to run fiber optic cables for high-speed internet. They're Mm. like, "We've, we've got this path. It's super easy to just drag a cable through an open tube that's already there. Sure. I mean, that is assuming that the criminal underworld hasn't already assumed ownership over these nefarious underground travel routes. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. If they were doing, like, drug deals by pneumatic tube... Oh, I mean, like... <laughs> the infrastructure is already there. You just yeah. need to make sure you've got people at point. I'm not recommending anything right, right. like this. Nothing I don't illegal know. for sure. You're, but You're making uh... me want to try drugs. Like if there's <laughs> tubes involved. <laughs> wow, that is a low barrier of entry, Jennifer. <laughs> it's true. That's on me. That's on me. <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, Gizmodo is happy to announce that scientists have finally made quieter Velcro. Finally. Finally. (laughs) Was this an issue? (laughs) Well, for some, I think it was. I mean, when you're trying to do something discreetly, right? Like, you know, people are sleeping on the plane and you're opening your bag to grab your headphones. And Mm. sometimes if you've ever had Velcro get caught on something like soft or silky, it can actually pull the threads as well. So it can shred fabrics and... Especially, and they note in this article that, like, when it comes to military applications where quiet can be critical. Oh, that makes sense. Right? (laughs) Because I was thinking, like, ninjas. Like, how many ninjas are wearing Velcro? (laughs) It just doesn't seem like a problem. But, uh, yeah, the military uses Velcro. I can see that. Yeah, I mean, this is, like, straight out of Garden State, you know? That's the entire premise for how the one guy got super rich. (laughs) He just sold his silent Velcro to the military. That's awesome. Oh, I didn't know that. I mean, it doesn't mention that in the article, but I can see how that was a factor into someone going, you know... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, we all know what Velcro is, and it was invented by George de Mestral back in 1941 after he was researching why burrs stuck to his clothing during a walk in the woods. Classic Hmm. inspiration. What the hell is this, and why is it? Okay, maybe we can monetize it. (laughs) It's incredibly convenient. It's used everywhere, but it does have drawbacks like we've noted. And there have been variations made to this recipe over the years, but to ensure a strong hold the hooks themselves have to be made out of a rigid plastic, and that's what causes all the damage and the noise. So that's where the research team from Wageningen University focused their efforts. In a paper recently published in the journal Biointerfaces, which is such a lovely journal name, I have to say, mm. the researchers explained how 3D printing was used to develop molds to create flexible surfaces covered in tiny mushroom-inspired structures. And what this redesign does is it provides as much grip as the traditional hook and loop fasteners, but it easily pulls away from different types of delicate fabrics without causing any damage. And they're also made from a plastic that's more flexible than the traditional hook design, which means the deafening rip as two surfaces are pulled (laughs) apart is considerably muted. And this is, as Gizmodo notes, is a feature that anyone over the age of 10 will appreciate. (laughs) (laughs) While Velcro was originally inspired by Mother Nature, this new mushroom-like fastener could facilitate the development of, get this, animal-inspired soft robots like artificial geckos that could walk on walls or ceilings 
or even creatures with flexible robotic tentacles like octopuses that could adhere to various surfaces or grab items without ever causing damage in the process. So the researchers are not quite ready to commercialize what they've created just yet, but they do suspect that further experimentation with the shape of the mushroom structures and even the length of the stem could yield an even stronger fastener with little to no drawbacks. Yeah, I mean, they're imagining the entire interior of your house basically being made of this material, and then the little creatures can just sort of walk up around and do whatever tasks you've assigned them. I mean, you know, the 70s are really coming back in terms of interior decoration and design trends. Mm. So if we can have some kind of Barbarella future that I have been (laughs) waiting for, like, I am all about it. I have to admit that I've always wanted one of those insane shag carpets. Right? That's true. You get the shag carpet with the Velcro walls. Yeah, it's a good good trade. Yeah. You get a whole (laughs) shag carpeted capsule of a room and then you have your little robo octopus vac that keeps everything clean. Like, (laughs) what's not to love? Let's invest in it. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. link. Well, we are in the throes of summer. I know it's not super hot everywhere that our listeners live, but in Texas, it's over 100 and it sucks. And uh, so we have a nice, refreshing article today from Smithsonian Mag. It's called The Accidental Invention of the Slip and Slide. Ooh. Uh, did you guys did you guys have slip and slides as kids? Did you ride on them? I didn't have one, but I rode one for sure. Yeah. You know, and it's... do you ride a slip and slide? Yeah, or is I don't that know. just something you play on or use? You ride it? I don't know. I mean, I I mean just... if you're doing it correctly. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, that was actually always my problem with slip and slides was maybe this was just user error, but we could never get it really that slippery. And so it really mm. was just an exercise in like flinging my body onto the ground and, <laughs> oh. and, and it hurt and I didn't enjoy them. And I was never able to figure out why people enjoyed these things. But uh, you can actually get a good speed on them and several people have injured themselves on them, which we'll get to in a minute. Mm. <laughs> Take yourself back, if you will, to the summer of 1960. Robert Carrier of Lakewood, California, came home one day to find his 10-year-old son, Mike, and Mike's friends sliding around with a hose on their painted concrete driveway. And I guess this was sort of like a very smooth concrete. Like, all the concrete I've ever seen is pretty rough. Like, sidewalk concrete is not something you could slip around on. But I guess they had a much smoother driveway. And his friends had just sort of been bored and hot. And so they brought out the hose and were just sort of slipping and sliding around. And as he said, basically, if you're doing this on concrete, you're going to hurt yourself. So he had Mm -hmm. the great idea. He worked as an upholsterer for a luxury boat manufacturing company. And Mm -hmm. he brought home a 50-foot roll of Naugahyde, which was, you know, a brand new technological invention back then. It was this vinyl-y fabric that was great for boats because it wouldn't soak in the water. And it was very slippery. So he just brought home a big roll of it, rolled it out in the yard. And I was like, there you go, kids. Now you won't hurt yourself. But... After some friends of his heard about it, he sort of started modifying the model. He added some sewn tubes down the length of it that you could connect a hose to so it would constantly Mm. spray the water. Keep it lubricated, right? That's right. Keep it slippery and not have to have somebody constantly spraying a hose on it. And he Mm -hmm. filed a patent for it in 1961. The patent called the item Aquatic Play Equipment for the Sport of Body Planing. (laughs) You know, you got to get real specific there in your U.S. patents. Uh, he showed sure. it to some co-workers and Carrier's boss, it turned out, knew someone who worked at Whammo, which was the toy company back in the 1960s. So Whammo licensed the toy. They shortened it to 25 feet and they subbed in kind of a less expensive vinyl that was, of course, in that classic yellow color. And mm-hmm. they revealed it as the slip and slide magic water slide at the Toy Fair trade show in New York City in February of 1961 
by September of 1961, they had sold over 300,000 of them. Yikes. Yeah. So, I mean, it was sort of a it was an item of its time. It kind of hit the market right when it needed to. It was priced at just nine ninety five, which was cheaper than a pass to a neighborhood pool. And the commercial, which they have linked in the article, it's fantastic. It just showed kids using it. You know, there really wasn't a whole lot of like fun, exciting graphics, nothing like that. It was just a bunch of kids flying down the, the ground towards the camera. <laughs> and honestly, itself, you yeah, know? and watching it, I was like, oh, that does look like fun. How come mine never worked like that? But <laughs> the, the advertisement's great. Also, at the end of the ad, there's an ad for another Whammo product called the Water Wiggle, which was just this sort of cap that you attach to the end of the hose. And because it redirected the flow of the water backwards, it causes the hose to just sort of like fly around and squiggle around in the air. It's very weird. Um, It has a little happy face on it. I don't know. But uh, anyway, as of 2011, more than 30 million of them had been sold. You know, they've modified it over the years. Modern versions have double lanes for racing. They've got various inflatable (laughs) add-ons that are like, you know, a big shark jaw you can fly through. (laughs) There's that splash dunk ball net where you can like slide and try to throw a ball in at the same time. But crucially, only slip and slides can be that patented yellow color. If it's yellow, it's a real Ah. slip and slide. And if it's not, eh, you got to knock off. It's not the same one. As I mentioned before, they have had some problems. They did a brief recall in 1993 due to injuries. Between 1973 and 1991, seven adults and a 13-year-old boy suffered neck injuries, paraplegia, Uh. and even quadriplegia. Basically, because they had shortened the length of the slip and slide over time, if you're too heavy and you're going too fast, you go flying down that thing, you hit that abrupt stop at the end, and that's what injured you. So they re-released it with a warning that it was for only under 12, And they added this inflatable reservoir of water at the end. So you kind of dive into a little pool to slow yourself down a little bit. Uh, Mm. But primarily it was just putting the, this is only for under 12. So if you're an adult, you hurt yourself. It's not our fault. Mm -hmm. Surprisingly to me, it is not yet in the Hall of Fame at the Strong Museum of Play, which is sort of this big toy museum that's really fantastic if you ever get to go. But it has been on the nominee list since 2014. And basically people involved say it's going to get its day soon. They just sort of have to pick one every year and it hasn't gotten its chance yet. It Mm. remains, even today, the most profitable item in Whammo's line of toys. So it's, you know, to this day, people like him. And they had a fun little uh, denouement at the end of the story there. The inventor, Robert Carrier, he used his royalties to start an aircraft interiors business. So, you know, he went he went from boats to aircraft. It was a nice little step up for him. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> Good for him. Yeah. And he noted, of course, you know, it really was kind of his son and his son's friend's invention. He just sort of added the materials to make it a little safer. Well, those heirs have earned every cent of their inheritance. How about that? That's right. And if I if I don't want to use it this summer, that's okay because I'm too old for it now. I'm not allowed according to the rules. So that's <laughs> I mean, yeah, it I've seen mostly like fail videos that involve some kind of DIY or right. know, spin on the slip and slide and my risk tolerance is definitely starting to fade the older I get, but right. uh, you know, make sure you've got a lot of bumpers, a lot of cushy spaces around and, and Enjoy responsibly. That's right. And make sure it's yellow. Otherwise. (laughs) Yeah. If it's not yellow, it's a health hazard. That's right. (laughs) And remember, we're talking about slip and slides, not urine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm sorry. I was just thinking of the make it yellow or if it's yellow, let it mellow. And uh, I don't know why I started thinking of pee. That's okay. That's a good tagline for just about anything, really, is we're not talking about urine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Next link. 
Next, Next link. link. Well, at thehustle.co, you could learn how a secretary and single mom was the inventor of liquid paper. Y'all remember liquid paper, oh, right? Yes, and I know um, a weird urban legend that may not be true. So you tell me who invented it and I'll see if I'm right. Yeah. Well, give me your urban legend because it wasn't until I read the end of this that I made that connection was like, oh, but tell me what you've heard. I've heard that it, she was the mother of one of the monkeys, the band. Bingo. Yep. It's true. That's awesome. It's absolutely 100% true, at least according to (laughs) thehustle.co. So her name was Betty Nesmith Graham. So if you're thinking of that monkey, it's probably Mike Nesmith. He's Mm -hmm. the one that wore the hat and was kind of... The monkeys were like the first band I ever had a crush on when I was a kid because we watched (laughs) Nick at Night. Uh Definitely showing my age here, but he always wore the beanie. Anyway, um, (laughs) she was a native Texan. Hey, hey, hey. All right. And in 1956, she sat in a garage surrounded by buckets of white tempera paint, empty nail polish bottles, and handmade labels, and had no idea that she was on the brink of something truly revolutionary. Mm-hmm. And that product she would eventually create was called liquid paper. She did not have a background as a chemist or an engineer. She was just a single mom from Texas who had a brilliant idea while working a nine-to-five job as a secretary. But she was also kind of a product marketing genius. So over several decades, she found a need in the market. She organically grew her business. She staved off the competition and she bootstrapped her way to a $47.5 million exit, which would be roughly $173 million in today's money. And wow. this was all during a time when women were discouraged from pursuing business ventures, right? Yeah. <laughs> she didn't need that monkey's money. She was all good on her own, huh? <laughs> no, no. And it actually raises the question, would he have been a monkey had he not come from money? Huh? Oh, so she made the money before he was a monkey. Okay. Right, right. right. She was raised to be imaginative, strong-willed, and independent. Her mother owned a knitting store and taught her how to paint from a very young age. And her father was a manager at an auto parts company. And he imparted the values of consistency and hard work. But Graham herself didn't really care much for traditional education. Uh, She Hmm. dropped out of high school at 17. She married a soldier named Warren Nesmith, how she got the Nesmith name. And she had a baby boy, whom we've already identified at the start of this. (laughs) However, when her husband returned home from World War II, the couple divorced and Graham was left to single-handedly raise this little monkey, right? So Mm -hmm. to make ends meet, she found work as a secretary at Texas Bank and Trust. And at that time, IBM had just come out with a new line of electric typewriters that were faster than previous models and they used those carbon film ribbons. But that invention had a few downsides because the keypad itself was so sensitive, there were more typographical errors. Hmm. And because they used these carbon ribbons, they made these errors impossible to erase without leaving smudges all over the paper. Mm -hmm. So she had previously had a side hustle painting window displays at the bank. And she later recalled, an artist never corrects by erasing, but always paints over the error. So after work one day, she went to the library and looked up a recipe for tempera, which is an age-old water-based paint. And she whipped up a white-colored liquid in her kitchen blender, poured it into an empty nail polish bottle, and started secretly using it at work to cover up typos on documents. (laughs) And she tried to keep it a secret because, you know, initially this was a way for her to cover her own mistakes, but word got out and then all the other secretaries wanted in on the action. So by 57, she was selling about 100 bottles a month just to her colleagues. Wow. But there was still increasing demand. So she turned her garage into a mini packing plant. She paid her son and his friends a dollar an hour to fill the little glass bottles and put on the handwritten labels. And she called her product Mistake Out. Hmm. 
She knew she'd need to improve the quality and consistency of the product because it was still just being made at home. Mm-hmm. So she got some help from her son's chemistry teacher and an employee at a paint shop. And then on weekends, she would just drive around Texas pitching mistake out to wholesalers. A bunch of them decided to take a pass because what does this woman think sure. she's doing trying to get into business? So she decided to market it herself. And her first big score came after she put a placement in a national supply magazine. She got 500 orders all over the U.S., including wow. a 400 bottle sale just to the General Electric Company, GE. Hmm. But the effort took a toll because one day at work, she accidentally signed off a letter as the mistake out company instead of Texas Bank and Trust. And they fired her. Aw. Wow. But that firing was a blessing in disguise, right? Because this is how she got her really big break. Mm -hmm. So in 1958, she changed the name to Liquid Paper. She filed for a patent. And over the next few years, she sought help from a number of industry professionals, including a polymer chemist named Bill Mallow. And she further refined the product for mass market. By 1964, the production of liquid paper grew 10 times to 5,000 bottles per week. Then in 1967, only three years later, the company notched its first $1 million in sales, which in today's money is a cool $8 million. Yeah. And although there were several competitors like Whiteout, which came about in about 1966, she still maintained the lion's share of the market. Hmm. But as her operation took off, people closest to her tried to take advantage of her success. For example, years earlier in 1962, she had married a frozen food salesman named Robert Graham and had given him partial control of Liquid Paper's business affairs. Side note, don't do that. In 1976, (laughs) they divorced and he tried to cut her out of the company, Mm. big surprise, by changing the formula and booting her off the board. But she managed to stave off her ex and maintain a 49% stake in her company. Thank Mm. goodness. When her health started to fail in 1979, she sold liquid paper to Gillette for about $47.5 million, which is around $173 million today, plus royalties on every bottle sold for the next two decades. And then six months after that deal, at the age of 56, she died from a stroke, which was just (gasps) kind of tragic timing. But her son, Michael, who as chance would have it, went on to achieve fame as a member of the 60s pop group, The Monkees. He continued to champion his late mother's legacy, and he even appeared in commercials for liquid paper well into the 90s. And he even continued to receive those royalties from the deal his mother had worked out, and he used those to launch a music video company called Pop Clips, which was a predecessor to MTV that I had never heard of. But she left behind much more than a fortune, because at that time, corporations also didn't offer much in the way of employee benefits. And this was, for its time, a super progressive firm. So they had on-site childcare facilities. They had an employee-owned credit union. They had wheelchair-accessible facilities, tuition reimbursement, and a racially integrated staff that recognized affirmative action policies. And during her life, while she was making really good money, she also established two philanthropic foundations, one that supported women in the arts and the other that offered assistance to disadvantaged women. What a badass, right? So she just rocks in every way. And then her son was adorable. (laughs) That's right. And he was raised by a single mother during a time when there was a huge stigma and taboo Mm -hmm. against that. Well, I wish they don't have the liquid paper paintbrushes anymore. Now it's all like little tapes. I don't know if you guys ever use whiteout. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I miss the whiteout because it had that kind of like spongy wedge applicator. Mm. 
And I remember as a kid, I would use whiteout as a nail polish when I was bored during class. <laughs> My guess is they moved to the ribbon because it's a little bit cleaner. It doesn't it dry out as quickly. Mm -hmm. And you also can't get sniffing on the solvents. <laughs> sure, I hadn't even you remember thought the about smell, that angle. right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I remember the smell of whiteout. Next link. Next link. Uh, we're going to stay right in the kitchen here with this one. We got an article from Kevin Pang at menshealth.com, which is not one of our normal sites to draw from. But you know what? <laughs> I, where the interesting things are, that's where we go. This is a, right. a history of the George Foreman grill. Ooh! did you have one of those? Oh, I think everybody did. I'm sure I had one and then I lost one of those kind of like plastic fork scraper cleaner things and it became kind of a pain to clean up. Mm -hmm. It has all these kind of different moving pieces and it's hard to keep track of, but I I've had at least one, possibly even two. I feel like I never had one, but I was always dating someone who did. Like <laughs> they were always sort of in my periphery. It's like jumper cables. Like you never need them. You need them for somebody else. So yep, that was yep. my experience with them. But this is, you know, it's actually a very fascinating product history. It was not, of course, invented by George Foreman at all. He was a spokesman. It was invented in 1993 by a pair named Michael Bohm and Robert Johnson of Illinois. But they initially called it the short order grill. And it was meant mm. for tacos or fajitas because the idea was that it was angled and you could then scrape the cooked meat down the slope into the waiting tortilla. Oh. And that was they, they hadn't really thought about the fat draining aspect at all. They were really going with the like, no, it's easy to load your tortilla up. It's a transfer mechanism. Exactly. But the CEO of Salton Kitchen Appliance Company, Leon Dreeman or Dryman, he bought the design from them. And he was the one who named it the lean, mean, fat reducing grilling machine, which he mm. did because the mean machine was the name of Burt Reynolds football team in 1974's The Longest Yard. <laughs> Uh, which I have not seen, 70s movies and football movies both being not really my thing. But <laughs> but he was also the same guy, this Leon Dryman of uh, Salton. He was sort of the uh, proprietor of the Juice Man Juice Extractor and the Ron Perkeel uh, Pasta yes. Maker. This was sort mm -hmm. of his sweet spot was these gadgets for the kitchen that he would make infomercials about. That was his business model. Mm -hmm. And just like the juice extractor and the pasta maker, he initially used kind of a spunky older white guy as the spokesman, right? Sitting there in the kitchen with the apron, getting the audience mm -hmm. all riled up. Look at it, mm -hmm. you know, it slices, it dices. And for whatever reason, that just wasn't working with the George Foreman grill. So somebody else in his orbit suggested getting in touch with George Foreman. And George Foreman's like, yeah, I kind of like this. I'd be willing to be a spokesman. But he demanded 45% of all the profits. He invested nothing. Wow. And he just said, you are going to pay out the nose for my name. At the time, it was an unheard of deal. Yeah. It almost makes you suspect that maybe he was like, I don't really want to do this. So I'm just going to like put a, a screw you offer in to basically get the guy. To right. yeah. But Dryman yeah. agreed to it. And they initially pitched it with George Foreman as like a big tough guy. They put a bunch of, of uh -huh. his boxing footage in and it was like, this is what a man eats with. And it <laughs> sat on the market for 18 months with minimal sales. Like nobody was buying yeah. it. They were basically about to ditch it. And they, at the last second, they decided to do a new infomercial, pitching it as an at-home dad thing. They got George mm. cooking at home with his kids. And what Dryman says was, on a Tuesday, I flew a film crew to George's house. It was on air by the following weekend. On Monday, all hell broke loose. <laughs> and the orders just 
flew in. Somehow seeing George Foreman as a dad just really like struck a nerve with people, I guess. Well, I mean, it's a more accessible demographic than like super burly, macho. Right. No, blah, one, blah, no blah. one's going to buy that. No one says like, oh, yeah, I, this is a macho man's grill. Like a macho man grill is like the big grill on the on the patio. Exactly. Right? It's not a tabletop counter friendly kitchen appliance. No, yeah. that's, that's for dads. What is smart pivot? Yeah. And it, and it worked. By 1999, they were raking in $160 million in sales per year. And based on all of that, they don't know exactly how much Foreman got, but they can estimate Foreman's profits were second only to Michael Jordan's contract with Nike. So other than that, it was the biggest spokesman deal in the history of the world. He obviously did pretty well. They eventually released over 90 different versions, which I I feel like I've only seen one version, so I don't know. I know I've seen versions that are different sizes, Mm. right? Like something that's a bit more petite for like, you know, one chicken breast and then something that can do maybe several at a time, but 90 iterations? Yeah. Yeah, they had 90 different versions. And even today, they are still selling about 3 million units per year. So well, it's uh, you can it's, find one at pretty much any Goodwill. That's really impressive. Oh, for sure. I mean, that's the thing though is they they've got all the used ones, but then they've got new ones as well. Like you could probably go to Bed Bath and Beyond and get one. I imagine. I don't know. But wow. But yeah, they're still selling them. And of course, the biggest demographic was college kids. They said, you know, there mm-hmm. was this aspect of the busy dad cooking for his kids, but largely it was college kids in dorm rooms who didn't have a stovetop at all. And this was a way for them to kind of get a little bit of cooking in there and feel like I'm eating meat, even though I'm stuck Mm -hmm. in my little dorm room with my mini fridge and raw cookie dough. (laughs) Note to marketers. That's right. Put your big boxer as a a lovable dad character and everybody will go crazy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that's going to wrap up this bonus episode of Damn Interesting Week. As always, if you'd like to support our podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. Fingers crossed we should be back next week in full force. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.